Timothy's. To 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to take the time to read the entire chapter in just a moment. 2 Timothy chapter 3. But let's set the context a little bit before we look at the text. Think with me a little bit about a missionary team that walks into a city that is completely given to paganism. And they walk into the city and they begin to observe an annual festival. All the women are very brightly dressed in their beautiful, colorful dresses. They have flowers in their hair. And they're all marching down to the local lake for a festival to their goddess. And they all go down at night, as it becomes night, in all of these festivities to worship their goddess that they believe is the moon god, but also the goddess of fertility. Now there is a huge temple to this goddess in the center of town. And in this temple, they have rituals to worship this goddess that include everything from offering sacrifices to also, unfortunately, actual physical sexual acts. And so I, I don't have to go into any more description to show you the evil that is involved here. How? How do we preach the gospel in a place like that? How do we remain faithful as new believers in a context like that? Well, what I've just described to you was the city of Ephesus. And in Acts chapter 18 and 19, that's not where we're going to read, but that's where you can read if you want to read when the Apostle Paul, Gaius, Aristarchus, walked into that city. Now, whether they were there on the festival, we don't know. But we know that festival was tied to the goddess Diana, or Artemis, in Greek. And it was a very pagan ritual. It was a very pagan city. And, and the description says to us that Ephesus not only had the Temple of Diana, which was one of the wonders of the world, but they had nine other major pagan religions in that city. And this is the place that God has led the missionary team to go and to preach the gospel. Well, I want you to fast forward with me now about 10 years. Well, we're going to go in the mid-50s of the first century to the mid-60s. The church in Ephesus, obviously, has been closed to 10 years old. A man that Paul invited to be part of his missionary team on his second missionary journey is now the pastor of the church in Ephesus, in that city we just described. Paul is in prison. Paul is writing to Timothy in the mid-60s. It is, in 2 Timothy, the last words of Paul that we have. These are his last words. Life is coming to an end. Here is what's going on with Timothy. Imagine living in a city like that. And you might say, oh, I know. We do know to some degree, don't we? But imagine living in the middle of that for an extended amount of time. And we find Timothy disillusioned, disappointed. 
by reminding them, hey, you got to go find faithful men and teach those faithful men and we'll teach others. So he reminded him of his calling, and then he reminded him of his ministry purpose. And now we come to chapter 3, where Paul is going to intensify his message to young Timothy in the pagan city of Ephesus, and how is Paul going to do that? How is Paul going to encourage Timothy in a difficult place and difficult circumstances? The question then applies for me and for you today. How would the same exact words of Paul touch our hearts today? How will we be encouraged today if we find ourselves here disappointed and maybe even a little spiritually depressed? Well, let's hear the words of Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be in a reading with verse 1, and we're going to read the entire chapter, right? So we're going to read the entire chapter. Now, you got to do some active reading with me, especially we're going to read verses 1 through 9, and then we'll pause, and then we'll continue. In verses 1 through 9, Paul's about to give a description of sinful humanity, and it's not pleasant. It's not pleasant. So I want you to see, though, about halfway through these nine verses, it intensifies more. It is worse. How can it get worse? And I want you to see if you can pick out how it's worse. Let's begin reading. Hey, I'm going to invite all of you to please stand as we read God's Word. If you cannot do that, you cannot do that, you please feel free to remain seated. You've been sitting a little while. Maybe it will be good for you to stretch your legs. And my time for my sermon begins now. <laughs> no, no, no. Let's read, all right? But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Please let me stop here because we're not going to explain all these first few verses. This does not imply that all women are weak. That's not what that said. It said there are some that are, and in that context there were, just as there are men who are also very susceptible to false doctrine and false teaching. Verse 7, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, the traditional names of some magicians back in the day of Moses and Pharaoh, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far. 
see around us the difficulties, and they have become overwhelming. God encourages us. God, may every voice in this place be silenced, except your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe see me. Perhaps you notice that about halfway through those first nine verses of this very, very evil description of humanity, it intensified in the sense of what way. The first four verses were basically a general description of human sinfulness. For Timothy, though, verses 5 through 9 took on an entirely different level of severity and that it spoke about the people that used to be part of them or had some semblance of Christianity or following Christ, but they were not true by their actions to what they said with their words. And we all know. We all know. It's one thing to have general opposition, and it's not pleasant. It's entirely different to have opposition from those that we once knew, or we were once close to, or once called themselves part of us. And so we see that the context in which Timothy's ministry in the city of Ephesus is quite We set that context very clearly. But as we begin, or we continue reading, we're going to read now verses 10 through 17. Don't have to stand again. All right. But we're going to read verses 10 through 17, and we want to see now actually the part we're going to dwell on here in the next few minutes. How did Paul attempt to encourage Timothy in this place? And the title of our sermon this morning, the title of our sermon is A Christ-Centered Legacy in the Last Days. A Christ-Centered Legacy in the Last Days. You noted that in verse 1, Paul told him we were living in the last days. This is not some dramatic doom and gloom declaration that I have for you today. In the Bible, generally speaking, the last days meant from the time Jesus ascended to the time he will return. We are living in the last days. And we have that description. But let's read verses 10 through 17. Notice how he starts. He's just described humanity. Here's what he says in continuing to speak to Timothy. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all those of a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Read verse 12 again, because you might have been daydreaming. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Timothy, because you learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred rites. 
teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. For every good work. Amen. So what does the text tell us? What does Paul say to Timothy that would have opportunities of being heard just today in our journey? How can he live a Christ and leave a Christ-centered legacy in these last days that are described in such a negative way? The first thing I would say to you that Paul said to Timothy is that we need to be very aware of our contrast in Christ. A contrast is where you compare two different things and you note that they are drastically different. Did you know that verse 10 and 14 that Paul says to Timothy, Hey Timothy, there's the way the world is described. That's the way the people who don't know Christ live. But you, Timothy, are different. And our difference is not because we are intellectually superior. It is not because we are denominationally dominant. It is because we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. A Christ-centered legacy is what we have. So in this contrast, here, that, that contrast has two sides of the same coin, doesn't it? Number one is that positive side where we can amen that we've been changed in Christ. We have a contrast. We have a difference. Hey, Paul could be looking at us, and if we know Christ, he can't say, look the world how hard it is, but you are different thanks to Christ. The other side of that coin is for us as followers of Jesus, that sinful, depraved world, apart from Christ still exists, and that's the one in which we live and breathe and work and minister and are expected to live a Christ life, a Christ life. So that contrast is both good and bad. It's good in the sense that we're different in Christ. That's the good part. The bad part is we still live in the bad part, and we have to make a difference. What do we see very early here in this contrast? What did Paul bring out in verse 10? He said, he said, number one, Timothy, don't forget who you are in Christ. That's what he said. He said, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. And what was all of that? What was the source of all of those good things in Paul's life? It was Christ and Christ alone. It was the transforming power of the gospel. It was knowing that at some point the Holy Spirit had revealed to me both my great need as being separated from God by my hand and my only solution in Christ and Christ alone. And I put my faith and trust in Christ. The gospel is the power of God and salvation. The gospel is that thing that transforms us. So Paul said, hey, don't forget who you are in Christ Jesus. In verse 14 he said, but as for you, continue. That word continue is the same word found in John chapter 15 when Jesus said about the vine and the branches, abide in me 
you. That word abide, to remain, to stay but you're fixed in Christ. That is our identity. Christ has changed us. Christ has established us. Christ will never abandon us. We can remain because of what he has done. And so we do indeed abide or continue, as it says here, in what you have learned and how you have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. We'll come back to that in a moment. So he said, hey, don't forget who you are in Christ. Number two, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget where you came from. Don't forget that you were once part of that description in verses 1 through 9. You were once there. And he says that in other epistles. You were there, but now you've been changed by the gospel. But I told you every passage is a missionary passage. And if you look here at verse 11, here's what he refers to. He says, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Hey, you know all those cities? You know where they were? They were on Paul's first missionary journey. He's referring back to his missionary journey. Lystra was her home and left for dead. Lystra was also the hometown of Timothy. And here they are, once again in ministry. May I say to you today, new churches don't fall out of the clouds. They do not. You all know, because I've heard your story. The First Baptist Blackwood rehearsed here a few times when I've been here. And I'm thankful for that. Brother Silas and his family moved here. Hey, churches do not fall out of the clouds. God has to touch the hearts of people who will go and they will do the work of ministry. Timothy didn't fall out of the clouds as a leader. Those churches in those cities didn't just appear magically. It was all the work of God and it was the work of obedience by those who said, God, I will go. I will go. I will go. And you know, Timothy at one point said, I will go. Didn't make him immune to the difficulties of life and ministry, did it? No, it did not. Hey, he says here, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Paul was never disingenuous with Timothy. He always let him know, you're walking into a very difficult path. You're going to walk down a very difficult path that will always be inundated and it will always be described by suffering. We already read verse 12. That all who desire to follow Christ will be persecuted. And as you look and you think about that, Paul knew that's where he come from. And, you know, you go back to the very first time Jesus spoke to his disciples. He said, blessed are you when men revile you and say all manner of evil against you. And by the way, the majority of your blessings are going to come in the life that is future, not in this life. If Jesus was trying to be a salesman, he was pretty crummy at He wasn't very successful in convincing men to follow out of the benefits they were going to get. Because it was a Christ-centered invitation, as it is for us today. And to put this whole message down to a 
so we see, you know, for our missionaries that we get ready to send to the mission field, we put them through security training, trying to prepare them not to be such easy targets and how to protect themselves. But, you know, ultimately, our theology of risk, and we do have a theology of risk, is summed up in the last statement of that theology that is written out. It says this. And those missionaries signed that document. It says, we believe that God is worthy of our lives and even our deaths if he so chooses. And so certainly Paul knew what Timothy was going through. Remember Paul was in prison. So Paul says, hey, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget who you are. And now he says to him in verse 12, we'll read that again. Don't forget where you're going. All who will live godly, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ, Jesus will be persecuted. So Paul, just like Jesus did for his disciples, he gave a realistic expectation, didn't he? What is our expectation? Is our expectation? on a distorted version of the gospel where everything revolves around me instead of Christ? Is it some version of Christianity where all my wants and whims are just handed to me from the magic No, that's not the presentation of God's word, is it? It's the expectation that we know that God is above all others. We serve God. God will sustain us. God will sustain us. We believe that. Another thing in training missionaries is if we can close the gap between expectation and reality, they're going to adjust a lot better on mission field. Let me tell you some simple things. If your expectations go on the mission field is that you're going to have hot water all the time and you're going to have a soft bed every night and you're going to have nice highways to travel on and boy, you're a big trouble. That's all I have to say. Because the, the gap between your expectations and reality is vast and in that big gap, you're, you're going to suffer big time. But you can increase that space and you can't ever get rid of it, mind you. But if you can decrease that space to where you have realistic expectations, you're going to be able to adjust much better. Jesus and Paul said very clearly that those who would follow Jesus, hey, the realistic expectation is that suffering will always be part of our dynamic. It will always be part of our dynamic. The key, once again, in verse 12, it says what? In Christ Jesus, those who are in Christ Jesus, that's the key. So we've already noticed here. We've noticed, first of all, we talked about our contrast in Christ. Everything we're going to look at is our companions in Christ. We don't walk the journey by ourselves. Paul never went by himself. Paul's always developing leaders. Even in Ephesus, when the gospel first went there, Gaius and Aristarchus. Aristarchus is one of my favorite characters in the Bible. He was always with Paul. Shipwrecks and prisons and beatings. Aristarchus was there. Hey, our 
simply means people who prop us up when we're about to fall down. This means those people that God has so placed in our lives to mentor us, to instruct us in God's Word, to pastor us, to disciple us, to pour our lives into others as those have poured their lives into us. An indispensable part of leaving a true legacy and living a Christ-centered legacy in the last days. The simple question is, who is that person that comes to mind when you think of that person who poured into your life spiritually? I heard Dr. King's name mentioned right here from this pulpit today. I didn't get to interact with Dr. King very much, but what I did was uh, uh, an indelible mark. Left an indelible mark. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. But we have those people who've done that for us. You know, those those godly examples, mentors, models, those people, they, they just simply help bring the gospel out of the clouds down to the dirt for us. They help us know how do I treat my life? How do I manage my money? How do I grow in Christ? How do I do these simple things that, yeah, intellectually I've heard about it, but I need to see somebody who does it. And so let's connect the knowing from the doing or the knowing to the doing, and these people are vital. And Paul said to Timothy in no uncertain terms, hey, Timothy, don't forget what I did for you in your life and how valuable my example of you is, and you need to remember that and that's how you keep going. And so, we have our companions in Christ in verse 14. It says, we continue to the things which I was learned and has been assured of. And I would say this, these people help us go from the casual to the conviction. From the casual to the conviction. Paul says here, hey, there's a difference in the things you have learned and the things that you have become convinced of. Two different levels here. And so we need to go from merely knowing to knowing and doing, from merely learning to being convinced of these things. And so these godly examples, these companions in Christ, help us on our journey, and we must have them. Another teaching here, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, these people, have great quality, they have great character, and we've got to be careful, don't we? Because we're going to see in just a minute in the conclusion of the sermon, it's not just some subjective, hey, I like them, we have common interests, I'm going to hang out with them. It's not that subjective. It's got to be values-based. It's got to be Word of God-based. We've got to know that the measure is objective, not subjective. And then we don't just follow whims, but we follow truth, and God's word is true. Yes. Yes. Christ is true. But the fact is that the teaching of our teachers is only as good as their character, and their character and conviction is only as good as their depth of relationship with Jesus Christ. Yes. The last point in the message this morning is this. We've noticed We've noticed our contrast in Christ. We've noticed our companions. And by the way, Paul specifically meant himself and Timothy 
There is no substitute in our lives for a prolonged exposure to the Word of God from the mouths and the teachings of those who have the character of Christ. We must. We must. And the last one. The last thing we'll talk about is our consistency in Christ. And that's really what the whole message is about, right? A legacy means I'm going to leave something of great value behind me. I'm going to be building that legacy right now. I'm disappointed and disillusioned at times in my life. Where do I find inspiration? Where do I find that, that strength that I need to carry on? And it is Christ-centeredness. It is. You know, we've talked about these godly examples, how they connect the knowing and the doing, how they do a lot of great things for us. They do that, indeed. But, you know, one thing that other, another thing that godly examples always do for us, and this is the object, they always point us to Christ and His Word. And that's where Paul ended the discussion. That's where he comes to a conclusion here. Notice, our consistency in Christ. Verse 15 was the verse where he said, from the child up, that long exposure to the Word of God through Lois and Eunice, his mother and grandmother, those holy scriptures which are able to make the lives of the salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Christ-centered, first of all, in a relationship that I have with Jesus Christ. That I know Christ, not merely ecclesiastically or church-wise, not merely intellectually, I know things about Jesus, but I know Jesus relationally. And my faith has been placed in Him. And Christ is the only true object of faith. Because your faith is not valid in and of itself. Your faith is only as valid as the thing or the one that you trust in. Christ is the only one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the only object of our faith. And in the last two verses, as we talk about our consistency, it's got to be that relationship with Christ, intimacy with Christ, intimacy 